Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in, his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey y'all, welcome back. This is The Savior Said, the episode for February 10th through 16th, 2 Nephi 6 through 10, Oh, how great the plan of our God. And this week we talk a lot about Christ and his love for us and his atonement and what it brings to our lives. So it's perfect that we would have this episode right in the middle of Valentine's Day. It's like right in between the time period that we will be studying this this particular set of scriptures. So good stuff all around. Now, this week, and you guys know, I mean, I even say in the end, the introduction, that when I'm doing these episodes, a lot of it is personal revelation for me, not necessarily for, you know, everyone who's listening, you need to get your own personal revelation. So the revelation I got this week when I was studying these scriptures is very much personal to me. Um, So I don't know if it'll apply to your situation and what you've got going on in your lives, but what I was really thinking about a lot this week, um, I've got some classes at school that really struggle with discipline problems. And I I even, I hate talking about school on this because I'm like, I never know who's listening. But, so I'm just going to be very vague, okay? And the discipline problems are not specific. They're very widespread. The entire class, you know, in these four different classes, the entire class just doesn't care. Like, they just don't care about what you say. And it's not just me. It's their teachers as well. Um, our counselors, our principals, everyone's tried to get involved to get these kids to shape up. And it's just, I mean, they're just not heads. Like they just refuse to sit there and listen. So I've been thinking a lot this week about classroom behavior management and discipline and things like that, but also obedience. And so we go in and we start reading, you know, these chapters in Nephi, second Nephi, and I'm reading the stuff that Jacob's talking about. And I'm reading, you know, how he's, describing how God worked with the Israelites and things like that. And a lot of it I felt like was fear-based, which is interesting to me because obedience to me comes from several different places. You can have obedience out of fear. You're afraid of something happening. Or you can have obedience out of love. Like you love somebody and so that's why you're obedient to them. You can also have obedience out of like a sense of duty. Like you know you need to do something and so you're just going to do it, right? And knowing this, like I've tried each one of those levels of obedience with these kids and I'm still really struggling, but that's neither here nor there. It got, it's what got me thinking about these scriptures this week and how he's describing the children of Israel. And, you know, it's interesting to me. Sorry, this is a rabbit trail that we're going off on. If you can't already tell, we are rabbit trailing here. Um, Okay, so the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament seem to be kind of different characters almost to me, whereas Old Testament was very fear-based, you know, children of Israel, you messed up, so you're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years, 
But then you have the God of the New Testament where I love my children so much I'm sending my only son who's going to save them. God never changes. Like, how does that make sense? He's not... He's not the same, like in these two different places. And I started thinking about the way I teach my classes. And, you know, knowing that these two classes are coming in, these classes full of knotheads, I tend to buckle down and be a whole lot more harsh on them. I think discipline-wise, I don't give an inch because if I do, then they will take a mile. But then I've got classes that come in that I know I can trust. And I know that, you know, having those relationships with them, that they'll do what I ask them to do. And so I'm able to be a little bit kinder and gentler with them. So all that to say, as I went in and started reading the reading this week, there's lots of like brimstone and hell and all that kind of stuff kind of talking about it. Um, And it kind of bothers me. And I think, I don't know if it's just because of the way that I am here in the South surrounded by so many other different denominations of the Christian religion where we have some that are very Bible bashy and you will burn in hell if you do not follow these ways. And it really turns me off. Or if, you know, there's a lot of it, you know, like the licking the dust at the feet, like there were several verses that described that and your enemies. And like, do you really want that for your enemies? And um, I don't know. A lot of it, I was like, this just doesn't feel like the God of the New Testament. And I was like, well, duh, Lexi, because this is the same time period that was going on in the Old Testament. So this would have been the God of the Old Testament that was dealing with the Israelites and all the other knotheads that were in the Old Testament that, you know, he kind of had to be harsh with, right? And so that helped make me understand this like a little bit more, um, where God was coming from and in these writings. And especially as Jacob goes in and he starts quoting Isaiah, Um, we start seeing, you know, a lot of that Isaiah quotations and stuff about Israel because there's those nuggets in there about Christ and where Christ comes in. And we start seeing the beauty of that. But it is a little bit harsher, I think, than maybe I would like. I don't know. But it is an Old Testament text, basically, that we're reading. It's just been translated by a modern prophet of God, right? So all that to say, those were just some of the thoughts I've had in my mind as I've been reading the scriptures this week. So as we go into this episode, I just wanted you to see kind of where my headspace was at. Thinking about obedience, thinking about how God gets us to be obedient, how in this case, Jacob was trying to encourage his brothers to be obedient. You know, that's kind of where my headspace is at. So here we go. Like, let's just jump right in to come follow me. Okay. So it's been 40 years since Lehi's family left Jerusalem. They were in a strange new land, half a world away from Jerusalem and the rest of God's covenant people. Okay, so pause there. Something that I have been wondering all along is, did Jerusalem get destroyed? Like, I know Jerusalem has had issues over the course of its history, but what was the big destruction that Lehi was so worried about? And was it such a big deal to be separated from their people half a world away if they were destroyed? So I went back in. Did a little bit of research for you. And possibly one of the best sources on it that I have found is from a website called Book of Mormon Central. Okay. And they have a whole timeline of Lehi leaving Jerusalem and what was going on in Jerusalem after Lehi had left. And there are actually many different theories of when exactly Lehi left Jerusalem. There are some clues within the text that kind of tell us different years and different things. So you can go into bookofmormoncentral.org and kind of see that timeline, see what some of the different opinions are. But it's safe to say that it was sometime around 600 B.C., that Lehi left Jerusalem. All right, and then we know that the siege of Jerusalem happened when Nebuchadnezzar II laid siege to Jerusalem was right about 589 BC, and it concluded in the destruction of the temple in 586 BC. So 
you have probably about 11 to 12 years after Lehi left Jerusalem was when it got destroyed, right? So at least as far as I can figure out, that's as far as I can figure out for you. Maybe there's some people smarter out there that know differently, and I would love to hear your theories about it. So by this point, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Um, It's been kind of thrown apart, and the different tribes have been scattered to the wind, right? So was there really that much for them to miss, I guess, is kind of what I'm wondering about. I don't know. Okay. We're going back into Book of Mormon land. I'm sorry for the rabbit trail, but we're back into Book of Mormon land. Going back into Come Follow Me. The introduction talks about how after Lehi died, the Lamanites and the Nephites split apart and it became like a centuries long kind of, I think of the Hatfields and the McCoys, like (laughs) centuries long duel, feuding duel between the two families, right? Between the two tribes. And that's what we're going to have over the next course of the next centuries, right? It was in these circumstances Jacob, who was Nephi's younger brother, was now ordained as a teacher for the Nephites, and he wanted the covenant people to know that God would never forget them, so they must never forget him. This is a message we surely need in our own world, where covenants are belittled and revelation rejected. Let us remember him, for we are not cast off. Great are the promises of the Lord, he declared. Among those promises, none is greater than the promise of an infinite atonement to overcome death and hell. Therefore, Jacob concluded, cheer up your hearts. And we do learn a lot about the atonement this week, and I'm so grateful we get the chance to do that. The first section in Come Follow Me, the Lord is merciful to his people and will fulfill his promises. And we've talked before about the power of promises and why the Lord gives us promises and gives us hope and gives us things to hold on to. Um... And it's just, I think it's one of the most important things that we can have is hope and something to hold on to in our lives, especially when we're going through hard times and we're going through stuff that doesn't make sense to have that hope for a better day and a brighter tomorrow and that things will make sense in due time. Like that is a really big blessing in it of itself. So those promises help us hold on to things. And in Come Follow Me, it says to help his people understand that they are a part of the house of Israel and could trust God in his promises. Jacob quoted prophecies of Isaiah, recorded in 2 Nephi 6 through 8. And, you know, again, talking about what was going on in Old World Jerusalem versus like what's going on here in New World, you know, Book of Mormon land, I have to think that these little settlers from Jerusalem would feel very isolated, I think maybe, from their brethren back in Jerusalem. So how comforting would it be for Jacob to whip out Isaiah and start quoting Isaiah to them? I mean, that might be really comforting because it is their history and it is some of the things that they've heard before. And um, I don't know. I thought that that might be just a really nice thing that he did there. Isaiah describes the scattering of Israel and the Savior's promised gathering and redemption of his people. As you read, ponder questions like the following. What do I learn about the Savior's redeeming love for me? What comfort does the Savior offer to those who seek him? And what can I do to more faithfully wait for the Savior and his promised blessings? Okay, so first one, what do I learn about the Savior's redeeming love for me? When I went into 2 Nephi, these are some of the parts that were difficult for me because there is a lot of like smiting of your enemies, which is not exactly the most like Christ-like thing. So I have a really hard time with that. But specifically in 2 Nephi 7, I found some comfort. So in verse 1, It starts out, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, Have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put away, or to whom of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? So, does the Lord cast us off? No. 
And that's what he's saying. He said, I haven't cast you off. You've pulled away from me. I haven't pulled away from you. I'm still there for you. Like you have no evidence that I have pulled away from you. Where's the bill of your mother's divorcement? Like, no, I haven't left you. I haven't decided to leave you. You're the one who's left me, right? And so I was like, well, that's comforting that he's always still there, even though I feel like maybe, you know, he's not there. It's me that's usually has pulled away. And then it goes on down. And it talks about some of the things that happened to the Savior during his crucifixion. And I thought verse 6 was specifically interesting. I gave my back to the smiter and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. And that's a detail about the crucifixion that we don't have anywhere else, but that there was someone there who like literally plucked the whiskers out of his beard, right? That's exactly what they're saying there. Um, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He's basically saying, I've set my face. I've like set myself to do this. I will not give up. You know, I will not let my people down. And that determination to save us, I think, was something that really stuck out to me. To save me is his love, that determination to love me, even when I don't deserve it. Even when I'm acting like some of the classes at school that drive me crazy, he still loves me. He doesn't put me away. I turn from him, right? And he set his face as flint and walked through all of this, even having the whiskers in his beard plucked out, which if you have ever plucked eyebrows, you know, like that is not pleasant to have hair ripped out of your face. And I'm sure that the soldiers that were doing it were not nearly as gentle as we are with our own eyebrows. But I'm just saying, I hate plucking my eyebrows. It's like the worst. But yeah, I mean, he even suffered that besides all the other indignities that were heaped upon him during his, you know, crucifixion and everything else that he went through that we studied last year and Come Follow Me. So it was interesting to me to think about his determination to go through all this awfulness for me. And I'm having one of those weeks where I'm just like in a bad place, I think, mentally. Um, you know, you know, just hormones and just a bunch of different stuff just kind of like collides together. And it's just like a bad place. Um, and I was even telling my husband this week, I was like, the amount of badness that I have in my life is not proportional to the emotional wreckage that I feel like. So I know it's out of proportion. So I don't know. I'm just kind of in a bad mood this week. And so I'm going in here and I'm reading Second Nephi 6 and Second Nephi 7. And I'm like, I just don't like these chapters. Like I really, and you guys can probably tell as like I'm talking and I'm going through this stuff. First of all, I'm like dancing around, even having to talk about it. Like the first part of this introduction here, I didn't want to talk about Come Follow Me because I didn't want to talk about those chapters. And then now I'm kind of like, again, I guess putting it off. But so six and seven were really hard for me to read and to even think about because they are so smitey and so like, you know, you've sinned and you've turned away from God. And that's that obedience that out of fear. And I don't do well with obedience out of fear. Like it just doesn't sit well with me. It just strikes me wrong. Like I just don't like it. And so then we get into chapter eight and things start to look better. Um, We start to see the obedience out of love, I think, that our Heavenly Father has for us. And this is really where I see my Savior's love for me. So 2 Nephi chapter 8, Hearken unto me, ye that follow after righteousness. Look unto the rock from which you are hewn. And it gives the example of Abraham and Sarah and the ways that he blessed them. And he blessed them tremendously, Um, especially, you know, you look at the Abrahamic covenant and what it meant to an entire culture of people. Like that was a huge blessing, and not just to Abraham, but an entire culture. And then three, it says, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all of her waste places. 
and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. And that scripture is so comforting to me this week, because I have felt like, you know, my heart has been kind of like a waste place, um, a wilderness, like there's not a whole lot growing in there this week. As I struggle both with my job with the kids at school, and then also just personally just being in a funk, um, you know, you just kind of feel like you're just in a wasteland when that happens. And so this verse was really hopeful to me. You know, you have that promise of hope. You have the promise that when you are in those waste places and when things look gray and dead, that there's hope that there will be a place like Eden springing up from that, that joy and gladness shall be found therein, in that waste place that you feel like you're walking through. And in verse four, he even says that he will be a light for my people. My righteousness is near, this is five. My salvation has gone forth and mine arm shall judge the people. The isle shall wait upon me and on my arm shall they trust. That was interesting to me, especially as we've learned, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about how the isles of the sea means anywhere, not Jerusalem. And so when we read about the isles here, it talks about places that are not Jerusalem will wait upon me. And they did have to wait. You know, the gospel went first to Jerusalem and then it slowly spread out to, you know, the other areas. Christ visited the other areas of the world and things like that. So they did have to wait like physically and literally. But I also think that there's a metaphorical waiting there that sometimes we have to wait on the Lord, but we always trust in his arm. We always trust in his might. We always trust in the movement that he creates in our life. And so I really liked verse five. Like, I really, really like Isaiah. Um, This is a side note, too. I always call Isaiah my buddy. I love Isaiah because I love the way he writes. I think it's so beautiful. He has such a beautiful way with words. Now, I don't understand most of what he writes, and sometimes it does get a little, like, bashy-bashy, and I don't like that very much. But I tend to stick to Isaiah because I love the beautiful promises he gives, like we see here in chapter 8. And so I may skip around a little bit because I like the particular phrases he's using, and some of them I don't like quite as much, and I may skip over those. So just know that as we are going along, okay? All right, so speaking of dancing around, we're going to go ahead and um, drop on into verse 9. So it says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days. Art thou not he that cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Okay, so let's talk about Rahab. Who's Rahab? Because, you know, normally in the scriptures, when we think about our sister in the scripture, Rahab, in the Old Testament, they mention her as Rahab the harlot. I call her my sister in the scriptures, Rahab, but they call her Rahab the harlot. And so I was like, are they talking about the same Rahab? And like, they're cutting her? Like, what is the deal? No, 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 no. Rahab was actually an Egyptian sea monster. And it wasn't even in Isaiah that we first hear about Rahab. Rahab pops up in the Psalms. You see Psalms several times. And it's a, <laughs> if you go into Wikipedia and you look up Rahab, they've got like a whole article on Rahab. But it's a poetical name for Egypt. Sometimes it's used in the Psalms as to like represent Egypt because they did come after the children of Israel. Um, Rahab is apparently a big giant sea monster, a Leviathan that comes up from the deep and swallows things, which you could see why Egypt would be that to the children of Israel. So um but yeah, so that's that's Rahab. Rahab is a sea monster, not Rahab the harlot. I just want to clarify that because I love Rahab the harlot, uh, my sister in the scriptures. I do not necessarily know that I love Rahab the sea monster quite the same way. So when we read in 9 and it says, Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab, the sea monster, which also symbolically could mean Egypt. So are you not the same God who split the Red Seas, who 
took the children of Israel out of the clutches of Egypt and delivered them to safety after their 40 years in the wilderness, like you're the same God that did that. So if you can do that and find a way to do that, surely you can rescue me and my sins. Like that's what this is saying right there. And it's talking even a little bit more about that in 10. Art thou not he who hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? So we're talking about this parting of the Red Seas, the children of Israel fleeing Egypt as represented by the sea monster, right? Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy and holiness shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. And that is a beautiful promise as well. That reminded me of another scripture in Isaiah that reminds me of my savior. And it's Isaiah 61, three. And it says to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So how does Christ give us beauty for ashes? Well, if you think about, you know, ashes as someone being cremated or, you know, the body falling apart in the ground after it's died, of course, after the resurrection, death will no more be a thing. And that's beautiful. That is the beauty that he gives us is that death has been destroyed, that we will live again, that we will see those we love again sometime because of him, right? The oil of joy for mourning. And that also that takes away that sorrow and sadness of being apart from those people forever. We know that this the sorrow and this mourning will end one day when we are again reunited with them. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The heaviness is gone. And I also have to think, too, not only does this talk about death, but it also talks about our resurrected bodies. Like when we are perfected, mental illness especially, I guess that's been on my mind just because of the funk I've been in this week, but mental illness especially, our bodies will be perfected. Mental illness won't be a thing. Like that will be gone. So depression and anxiety and things like that, chemical imbalance is fixed. Like no, no more of this heaviness and this mourning and things like that, feeling like you are ashes or you're in a place of ash because of depression. Like that's gone, you know? And so that's a beautiful promise in and of itself too, is that one day joy will be there. And from those ashes and, you know, the things that come from the heaviness and sorrow, trees of righteousness will arise and they will be the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. So those base and yucky stuff will fall apart. It'll decompose just like you put garbage out into a decomposer, right? And it makes this really lovely fertilizer that can make plants grow big and strong. This yucky stuff that we're going through now eventually will become obsolete and we will rise from it like a big giant strong tree and be a planting of the Lord. And I love the symbology there. That's one of the reasons I love Isaiah is that rich, rich symbology. And that was a really good example of that as well. Going back to 2 Nephi 8, in verse 12, I am he, yea, I am he that comforteth you. Behold, who art thou, that thou should be afraid of men who shall die and of the son of man who shall be made like unto the grass? And going down into 15, I am the Lord thy God, whose waves roared, The Lord of hosts is my name. I have put words in thy mouth and have covered thee in the shadow of my hand that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, behold, thou art my people. Whoa, that's beautiful stuff right there. Okay, so number one, I love the imagery of the waves roaring the name of the Lord thy God. Like that is beautiful right there. But I have put my words into thy mouth. Okay, so 
doing this podcast was a big step for me because I didn't know if I would always have things to say. And it is amazing to me when I come into my closet and I sit down and I turn on the microphone in my laptop and I start talking, the things that come out of my mouth that I have to say, the Lord literally put stuff into my mouth to tell you guys. And um, and also in the telling, I'm learning myself things that the Lord is kind of, I guess, directing me to know for my own personal life as well. So he does put words in our mouths. And he says, I have covered thee in the shadow of my hand. If you think about being out in the heat and, you know, finding shade, you're protected. And also the shadow of his hand, if his hand is over you, you're protected from so many things. Like that is a blessing as well. That I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say, thou art my people. So again, we're talking about planting and things springing out of like decomposing matter because it's fertilizer for the the springing out of, right? And so he's saying, behold, you're mine. You are mine. And that's what he's saying in verse 16. And that is a beautiful testimony to how Christ loves us and our father in heaven loves us. He says, you are mine. You who are flawed and imperfect and are whiny and do the wrong thing sometimes and sometimes you're clumsy and sometimes you're klutzy and sometimes you're awkward and sometimes you hurt other people, but you're still mine because there are times where you are lovely and you are inspiring and you are uplifting and you help others and you serve others with the talents I have given you and that is mine too. He claims all of that, the good and the bad is what he gets from us. And that is a beautiful promise. Sorry, guys, I'm like bawling my eyes out over here. I'm sure you can hear it. And I'm, I'm so sorry, but that's just, I mean, it's just so amazing to me that he claims us even in our flaws and our imperfections, but yet he still gives us tools to make beauty out of our lives and to find beauty in others. And it's, it's just an amazing love that he has for us. And then I'm going to jump down into 24 and I'm going to selectively um, pick some phrases from 24 and 25. And it says, awake, awake and put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down and loose thyself from the band of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So loose yourself from things that are holding you back. Loose yourself from sin. Loose yourself from fear from all the things that you can come up with your head in your head that would hold you back from doing something, lose all of that and come unto me. You know, that's what he's saying there and see what I can give you. I can give you beauty for ashes. Like that is just amazing. So that is all for <laughs> the first section and come follow me. And what do I learn about the Savior's redeeming love for me? All right, that's that's what I learned this week is that he loves me and he loves not only my good parts, but also my bad parts, but, you know, and everything in between that he knows me better and I know myself and he loves me anyways. And that gives me great comfort, which answers the second question. And what can I do to more faithfully wait for the Savior and his promised blessings? And one of the things that I came up with this week was, you know, again, I'm in a semi-negative headspace. So I was focusing a lot on all the things I was doing wrong. And I was focusing, you know, a lot in the scriptures on all the things that were wrong in the scriptures, you know, the the bad stuff or whatever, um, what happens when we're bad and when we sin. And, you know, I realized I need to be more gentle with myself and give myself more breaks and not expect perfection of myself and um, to give myself some grace and let myself be imperfect. And when I am imperfect, shake it off and try again and keep trying and keep learning and keep growing 
that I'm not always going to be perfect and that's okay. And it's okay to learn from that. And that's something I struggle with because I have this like need to be perfect. And, you know, it it's hard for me to fail at things and to admit that I've failed at things. But I mean, there, there are failures there and to be able to move on from those and to shake it off and just keep going is hard. What can I do to more faithfully wait for the Savior and his promised blessings would be to give myself grace and allow myself to use his grace and his forgiveness to heal and move on, I think is really what it came to me from that. All right, going into 2 Nephi 9, this is the next section in Come Follow Me. Through his atonement, Jesus Christ delivers all people from physical and spiritual death. What words or images would you use to communicate to someone our desperate need for a redeemer to rescue us from death and sin? Jacob used the words awful and monster, which is very ironic considering he just quoted Isaiah talking about Rahab, the sea monster. What did Jacob teach about that monster, death and hell, and the escape that God has prepared for us? And that's from 2 Nephi 9.10. 2 Nephi 9.10 says, O great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster. Yea, that monster, death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. Now, it's important to point out here that our spirit does not die. But spiritual death is moving away from our Heavenly Father. But that's why the atonement is so important, because it reconciles us to our Heavenly Father. And we continue to see that when we read in 12, This death of which I have spoken, which is spiritual death, shall deliver up its dead, which spiritual death is hell, wherefore death and hell must deliver up their dead, and hell must deliver up its captive spirits, and the grave must deliver up its captive bodies, and the bodies and the spirit of men will be restored one to another, and it is by the power of the resurrection of the Holy One of Israel. Christ and his atonement restores us back to our Heavenly Father. The whole concept of hell is something I've thought about a lot this week, too, because, I mean, this is a lot of like death and hell and devil and, you know, all all that stuff. And this is gospel according to Lexi. I just, I want to put that out there. But I don't think that hell is an actual place. I think hell will be a psychological condition for us when we get to the other side and we see our Heavenly Father's face and we realize the ways that we've let him down. You know, you think about when you're younger, you would much rather sit in time out or, you know, whatever punishment your parents could cook up than have them be disappointed in you, right? The Having the disappointment of someone whose favor you seek, like that is just heartbreaking. And so I think that that will be hell. I think it will be a self-inflicted hell of knowing what we could have had and fell short of and knowing the ways that we disappointed our father in heaven. And we see that actually this week in our reading in 2 Nephi 9 and in verse 14. And it says, wherefore, we shall have a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and all our uncleanliness and all our nakedness. And the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness being clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness. All right. And so I can see that there, that that would be like the hell. And I think, you know, none of us is perfect. So I think that there will be moments where we will see our Heavenly Father and be like, oh, Heavenly Father, I failed you. But I think if you are on the covenant path and you are doing what you are supposed to be doing and you know that you are trying your hardest, it's like a kid coming to you and saying, hey, I messed up and I really tried really hard, but I messed up. And, you know, cupping their little face in your hands and being like, it's okay. It's okay. My love for you makes it okay, you know? And so I see that as well. And that is in 17. Oh, great the justice and greatness of our God. 
for he executeth all his words, and they have gone forth out of his mouth, and his law must be fulfilled. The saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, those who have believed in Christ, okay, they who have endured the crosses of the world and despised the shame of it, so those who have walked through this world and had a hard time and still tried to stay on the covenant path and still tried to be true to Christ, that's who he's talking about. They shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. O greatness of the mercy of our God, the Holy One of Israel, for he delivereth his saints from that awful monster, the devil, and death and hell and that lake of fire and brimstone, which is endless torment. See, there's like the whole fire and brimstone thing. Like I just, uh, but the mercy is that he delivers us from that awful monster, that awful sea monster of Rahab, right? And he knoweth all things. This is in 20. And there is not anything safe. He knows it. Know it. He cometh into the world that he may save all men, if they will hearken unto his voice. And behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, children who belong to the family of Adam. Okay, 21 is one of my favorite scriptures of all time because of that phrase, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, meaning the atonement cleans and purifies and cleanses every living creature as well. That means that our animals that we love so much, the atonement impacts them too which is beautiful. Um, And I believe that that means that our beloved pets who have passed on before us, that we will get to see them again. And that is a great blessing to me because, you know, we love those little animals and um, they become such a part of our life, our little fur babies, even as some people call them. Um, And so that's a beautiful, beautiful scripture to me and a beautiful example of how our Heavenly Father knows us and wants us to be happy. And so when I go back into Come Follow Me, you know, I know we were talking about hell and everything and the escape that God has prepared for us. And we see that when we rely on the Savior and we stay on the covenant path, that was the escape that we've got there. And it says, what truths do you find about the atonement of Jesus Christ that cause you to praise the wisdom of God, his mercy and his grace? Well, I've already given you an example of, you know, he knows that we love our animals. And so the atonement covers that too. But just the wisdom that he has in the way that he leads us and he guides us, you know, knowing that I don't think that this time period that we live in now responds quite as well to the brimstone and fire and hell and stuff like that. Um, as we do more to the loving and kind God, you know, he changes himself, not himself, but he changes the way he interacts with us, I think, to help us become most obedient to him. And I think in the time period that we live in, the best tactic that he can use and that church leaders can use and those of us who are in church can use to others around us is love and to reaching out to them with love and bringing them into the Savior's arms with love. And that's really what I see from my Father in heaven where you go back into the Old Testament times and there was a lot more of the smiting going on, like it was smitey smitey all the time, right? And so when you look at Laman and Lemuel, the only time they were obedient is when they were afraid of getting smited, right? So I don't think that they would have responded to the love quite, quite the same way that we as a culture today respond to the love and God's love and seeking after his love and, you know, not necessarily responding so well to the, like, I guess, threat of death and hell. All right, let's move on. I feel like we need to move on. Okay, I feel like we've talked a lot about the atonement and the next section is I can come unto Christ and receive the glorious blessings of his atonement. And yes, there are so many blessings of coming into him. I feel like we've covered a lot of that. 
So I want to talk about the final section. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I can cheer up my heart. Um, how perfect is that for Valentine's Day, by the way? Um, my heart is happy because of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate Valentine. He will never let you down. He has the perfect gift for you at all times, right? His love and the atonement is the perfect gift. And he just loves you nonstop. He loves you more than anyone else ever will. And so Jesus Christ is your perfect Valentine. Just just let you know. He even says, be mine, right? He even says, be mine. Um, so he's the perfect Valentine. So cheer up your heart because you have the perfect Valentine. Valentine this Valentine's Day. All right, Jacob's message was a joyful one. I speak unto you these things that you may rejoice and lift up your heads forever. As you read 2 Nephi 10, and it gives you several verses, what do you find that gives you hope? What else have you found in 2 Nephi 9 through 10 that has given you hope? And what will you do to remember these things when you feel discouraged? Okay, well, let's look at 2 Nephi 10 20. All right, so in here we have Jacob kind of recounting, you know, my actually my favorite phrase from this probably is that the Lord has made a path out of the sea so that we came to the isles of the sea. But he's recounting like their history of leaving Jerusalem and being led to the promised land. And he tells them in 23, that's where they get to cheer up your hearts and remember that you are free to act for yourselves. And we're free to act for ourselves because of the atonement of our Savior, right? And it says you can reconcile yourself to the will to God and not to the will of the devil. And after you reconcile to God, That is only in and through the grace of God that you are saved. Now, something interesting I learned this week is reconcile is actually a Latin-based word. And when you take apart the different parts of reconcile in Latin, it actually translates to to sit with again is what it translates into. Um, And I think there's like a different word arrangement. Like you have to rearrange the words like you do sometimes in languages. But the basic context is to sit with again. And so when we reconcile with our God, it means that we sit with him again. Like how beautiful is that thought? You know, that we can sit with our father again because of Jesus Christ, because of everything that he's done for us. That's why our hearts can be cheered up. I mean, that's the ultimate Valentine's Day present. You know, we're talking about Valentine's Day still. Um, I'm still thinking about Valentine's Day. That's the ultimate Valentine's Day present. Nothing you ever get will ever match that love that Jesus Christ has for you. And in 25, God will raise you from death by the power of the resurrection and also from everlasting death by the power of the atonement. And you can be received into the eternal kingdom of God and you can praise him through grace divine. Amen. Amen, Jacob. I agree. Amen. What will you do to remember these things when you feel discouraged? I guess honest and truly, like, come back to my scriptures. That's the best thing I can do. When I feel discouraged, I go back into my scriptures and I have very specific verses that I go in and... I come back to time and time again. That beauty for ashes one is one that I come back to time and time again. Another one of my favorites I go back to again and again that help remind me of this is also from my buddy Isaiah, Isaiah 64, and it's four. And it's four since the beginning of the world. Men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, and what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. To me, that tells me that God is always with me. He's always beside me, even when I can't see or hear him, and that I have no idea the good things that are in store for me because of him and what he has planned for me and what he has prepared for me. As long as I wait for him and I wait on him and I trust him, there's good things coming. And so when I am in those funky places where I just feel funky and I feel down and I feel just not good, by waiting for him, I can be reminded of those blessings that he has in store for me. 
when I need to be reminded of my perfect Valentine, Jesus Christ, I can go to the scriptures and they will remind me of all the different ways that I am loved by him and how I'm loved by my heavenly father, the good things that they have in store for me and the love that they have for me, even before all the blessings happen, but in the in-between time, you know, like the immediate goodness of God, that conference talk. Do y'all remember that conference talk, the immediate goodness of God? that his grace and his mercy are still with me even before the resurrection. And even before all this other stuff happens, that daily I can apply the atonement in my life. And daily I can be reconciled to God. I can sit with God again um, with him in my life because of the atonement. And that's a beautiful blessing as well. So that's really where I saw how I can remember him. Also, talking about the atonement and remembering him made me think about the sacrament and going and taking the sacrament each week. That's a really good way to stay away from being discouraged. And, you know, I I just put two and two together. I'm like, maybe that's why I've been so funky this week. Because last Sunday, I had a fever and I wasn't feeling very good. And so I stayed home from church. I'm like, I missed the sacrament. I'm like, maybe that's why I have felt like such down in the dumps all week long. Yeah. Okay. So tomorrow is Sunday. I'm going to go take the sacrament. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to be reconciled to God and that will be good. I hope you guys have had a good episode. I know I have kind of danced around a couple of things and I've been disappointed in a couple of things and it was kind of all over the place, but I hope it came together in the end for you. And I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day and a day full of love, even if you've got no one special in your life that you have your savior and he is special in your life. So um, I love you guys. You're special in my life and I will see you here next week. Bye y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening. 